Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We are joined today by Tim Warren, a co-founder and the CEO at Ambit. How are you doing today, Tim? Thank you so much for coming and doing this, by the way. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Really looking forward to our discussion. So can you talk to me a little bit about Ambit? What does Ambit mean? I always, like names are important to me. If you listen to the podcast a lot, you'll hear me say this. Was there a reason for calling it Ambit? And did most people know, like why? Yeah, so look, it's it's the core of the word ambition. It's the root of that word. And, and what that means is Ambit means scope. What is your Ambit? What is your scope? And so I know I've named a few companies over time and usually they're really hard to come up with. But really it was a, it starts with A, it's about five letters long, it's Latin. It was a pretty easy sell once my co-founders and I came up with the name. We just we just went with it because it represented the fact that we were going to start small, but we were going to get really large. Yeah, I love it. So I looked it up, actually. It's the area range that someone controls or affects. And I like the idea it's that thing you can control and affect as well, because I think it's indicative of what you're trying to do at ambit was it also the case that you could get the website too like the five digits and it's a name that works nicely well for a website yeah yeah oh goodness me 20 years ago it was, it was pretty different but um uh i have to say that it was hard so we got ambit ambitai.com and we couldn't get ambit.com it's been it's been offered to me for a seven figure sum but i won't be taking that up <laughs> In the middle of the COVID uh, pandemic, everyone was sitting around at home. Um, I noticed that Ambit.ai had gone out of business and I approached the founder and I bought it from them. And so it just shows that um, most clouds have a silver lining. For us, I was able to pick up a great domain name, Ambit.ai at that time. Yeah, so let's jump in and talk about this AI. And I want to start with the the article that you published a couple of days ago, or was it a week ago? This is the thing that really caught my eye, right? This whole conversation on LLMs, open source and stuff like that. Can you just give us a little bit of insight into why you posted that, what the thought process was? And I think that's going to let us dig deeper into some of the other things as well. It's pretty fascinating. Look, the, the current explosion of interest in large language models really dates back to an important paper uh, produced by Google, actually, and open-sourced in 2017. And it was called Transformers are All You Need. And it was talking about a particular approach to processing very large amounts of data, in particular language data. So for many years, the big companies, through thousands of engineers at this, and made little bits of progress. And you will have seen really good prompts popping up in Gmail to suggest what your next word might be. And sometimes it'll get a whole sentence. Yeah. Uh, a smaller company, OpenAI, led by Sam Altman, uh, thought they could do this in a disruptive fashion. And so with many, many less engineers, um, over the period of a number of years, they produced some incredible advances. And when they released it, uh, the end of November last year, it became the fastest adopted piece of technology of all time. So quite extraordinary. The the thing, the core thing here is that it is actually the underlying concepts and the underlying academic study that's gone into it is available to anyone. Yeah. And if you're smart enough, and I can assure you that I'm not, you can understand this and write your own. So we've branched into two different ways of um, developing AI in a in a walled garden in um, 
in a commercial sense with Google and uh, Google with their BARD and Microsoft and IBM and, and OpenAI. And then there's the open source people who are saying, hey, look, we can create this and we can do it better. We've got access to all the same data sets. Right. So there's a there's a kind of a, um, you know, the, the Ubuntu is, is the word for an open source um, operating system. And the concept is that we're stronger when we do it together. And it's really this concept of open AI, which has really taken over the server market now. Um, oh, sorry, uh, open source AI yeah. may well win the race. But I mean, hasn't it, hasn't open source software kind of won the race in so many other places as well? I mean, even just in the podcasting space, I look at things like Riverside, which feel like a mm. new product, but it's all, all the back end is all open source. They've just built a front end on top of it. I'm not suggesting that what's going to happen in the AI space is just going to be a front end on top of something, but I feel like open source is already winning a lot of these battles, no? I think you're right. So if you look at, uh, if you look at the development of things over time, there's certain particular applications uh, you know, I run I run Word and Excel, and and they do a good job, but all of our servers are running on a, a free and open source version of Linux. So it's like it's won certain things. And you mentioned the back end there. A lot of the things that are out of the way uh, are running on these uh, now very stable versions of of um, open source software. Yeah. I think that there needs to be a commercial incentive at the front end to get people to do some amazing things, but Companies have different approaches for that. And, I, you know, it's, it's going to be a bit of a wild west for some time to come. Yeah, I mean, look, Red Hat is my first example of this, right? Linux itself, itself was really the first successful open source thing at scale. And Red Hat came along and said, we can create a financial incentive and a commercial incentive for ourselves because you want to use Linux, but we can help you use it better. I know this because at yeah. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, we installed Linux servers in the data room through Red Hat. So I know that that happened and it's, I think it's going to happen in the same space in AI. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, look, in that article that I sent you about the different layers of AI and that in that layer one, uh, where the LLNs are competing, those foundation models, I think you'll find this, uh, there's going to be the, the multitude of commercial operators and then somewhere in there is going to be the open source and it'll be a lot quicker than it was in the server space, which Microsoft very much owned for some time. Yep. Uh, simply because you can use AI to write its own code, which is phenomenal. But in the layer two, that's where the red hats of the world are going to exist. So wrapping, adding commercial layers, actually creating the business use cases, that is where the, I imagine the value flowing to. So that's one of the reasons why Ambit, for a start, has stayed in that area, as opposed to building a, um, a, a massive... LLM because we can really rent someone else's for quite cheap. Yeah, exactly. And can we talk about this a little bit as well? I was reading, you just, you just reminded me of something. I was reading an article a couple of days ago about NVIDIA, right? Because they just did this big conference and the CEO of NVIDIA just went through this whole place where they said, we basically were running this business and we decided we kind of just had to give it up because we were just, we felt like we were going down the wrong street. We had to come back to the front of the street and then find another street to go down. But what was super interesting was like how GPUs have taken over a lot of the roles that CPUs used to use before, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm sure you know this, right? Yeah. But is there a hardware possibility here that, that I don't know anything about on the AI side as well, where new hardware needs to be created or optimized for this? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is an area I've, I've published on, uh, 
which is that I would put money on it. I don't know this um, by any means, but I'd put money on it that all kinds of companies are now working on specialist hardware because they're going to need it. Because can you imagine when AI meets wearables? It's going to be incredible, right? So in this space, I know that you know if you've got a if you've got a headset, say you've got an Oculus Rift headset from from Meta, then um, you you could put money on it, that they're they're building an uh, artificial intelligence capabilities into those. But the rise of GPUs, look, it's made sense for some time, and the core reason, if I can explain it to the Please. to the listeners, is that GPUs are very good at doing things in parallel. And CPUs are very good at doing things in a sequence. That's fundamentally what it comes down to. So if you're doing a whole lot of comparable operations, a GPU is going to be a very effective way of doing it. It's really like GPUs are a whole lot of CPUs in sequence. But magically, all of the, you know, the last five years, people have been madly creating Bitcoins and uh, crypto this and all kinds of NFTs and really entertaining things that you can have a bit of fun with. And when the party stops, uh, AI is going to be picking up that hardware and doing something really useful with it. Can we talk a little bit about where AI meets wearables and what that hardware is going to look like and what it's going to do for us? Yeah, well, if you want to know what it's going to look like, I would I would literally go to something like midjourney.ai and I'd say wearable AI hardware and I'd use that for ideation. All of these tools are right there. <laughs> I I do that daily in my job at the moment. So Where's it going to go? Look, you pick one area. I know a little bit about the fitness area. I used to do a lot of running now, a little bit less so. So there's there's always been things like, you know, the coach says, oh, it, all it can do is tell you to run a bit faster or a bit slower. There's not yeah. much to that. But I think, it, I think it might be kind of in the family space, you know. So how about childcare, baby care, ensuring this, putting something with your child when it goes to, and I'm staring off into the distance here as I think, when it goes to daycare, to be looked after, to kindergarten, um, to ensure that they're in a, a safe and quality space. This is more than senses, though. What AI can do is say, so what does that mean? That's something that's going to be, uh, I think, phenomenal. Interestingly, wearable tech has kind of just been going a little bit out of fashion, but I pre predict it to come back in a hurry. I think you'll see um, Apple Watch doing a lot in that space because they've already got such a dominant um such a dominant platform there but no it's 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 really going to be huge i think yeah i mean i want to go back to this fitness thing though right and also eating i'm just thinking about you've made me think about this for the first time if i'm eating something and if the if the gpu or the cpu or whatever's running my watch or whatever my fitbit is is super powerful and it can process data in real time and my body is always processing data in real time what can it send to that wearable that says, okay, slow down, dude, you've had one beer too many or don't have that extra piece of cake or something like that? You're laughing, but in, in a way, right, a lot of people's behavior is driven by what other people around them are telling them to do and not to do, right? But you don't want to listen to your mom or your wife tell you what to do. But if your watch tells you, you may listen, no? You'll take it from that AI coach, right? Hey, it reminds me when you said that. That's why I was smiling. There was, a, there was an app that came out when the app store was quite new. And if you tried to send a text after about 11 o'clock at night, then it made you do some complicated maths because it didn't want you to do <laughs> drunk it? texting. I love it. So I think, I mean, that's, a, that's pretty hilarious. It doesn't need any AI, of course. But um, one, of the, one of the brilliant things about it is that it's simply going to, well, put it a different way, we'll be living in a world in two years, which is going to look quite different at 
at the edges, the fundamental stuff will look the same. Yeah. But at the edges, in terms of our watches, our computers, the software that we're using um, will be fantastically, wonderfully different. It'll start off small and within a couple of years, something like this, um, we might find there's entirely different tools that are doing it. I see that you've got a, a picture up on screen there. Yep. I used a, a, a set of AI tools. I used beautiful.ai, used ChatGPT, I used our own engine, and I used MidJourney. And I used those tools to completely put together a presentation on artificial intelligence. And it did all of the words, all of the images, all of the layout, and the outline and everything. All I did, I was simply the, the puppet on the string presenting it. And that gives you a sense that that is, that is the possibility that can be done today. You imagine when all that stuff is hooked up. Yeah, because right now you're kind of just like stitching it together yourself. And I should tell you too, if you go look at my website, right, asiatechpodcast.com, if you mm. go down to the bottom, it says women in tech. I think it says crypto and then one other thing, venture capital or something. All of those images were created by Midjourney. Yeah, All yeah. Oh, it's sensational. Yeah. And it's for $10 a month to get almost unlimited access to it. It's so much fun. I, I, I will just sit there creating entertaining images. Um, <laughs> and I've sent some to people. It's very good at some things. I've sent some to people and they honestly can't tell the difference between um, that and a real photo. But I think more importantly is you can get mid-journey to be creative in areas where you don't expect it to be perfect. It's it's really yeah. artwork. And then your expectations are lower and goodness me, it exceeds them. It's just stunning. Yeah, and the point, the reason why I made the point about me using it is I'm not the target market for this. Like I've been told my entire life right, that I was a math and science guy, not a creative guy. Mm. And I realized actually when I stopped working on Wall Street that two of those things can be true that actually you can be super creative. And at my age to figure out that I can, like you said, go to Midjourney for $10 a month and create yeah. pretty incredible images, even though I can't draw them myself. And you're right. I have to do multiple iterations. Sorry, go ahead. But but the output's amazing. No, this is, a, this is an, a sense of expression, right? So my yeah. guess is that um, people who are typically told, oh, you know, I was told a similar thing, you know, maths and science, not creative. They're not mutually exclusive. The no. difference we might have is our ability to express that. Yeah. So when we've got a tool where we can have a chat to Midjourney and create something fabulous, it just fills me with just, I just enjoy it Same more here. than anything else. I know there's opportunities for making money there, but I don't care about those. I just, I honestly do it for fun. And I'm a natural early adopter and you've found, you know, we've got a similar background through that kind of Goldman's journey. When you, when you're released from that and you can start with something that's, um, oh that's really exciting. We are going to take huge steps forward as a, a worldwide, I guess, integrated ecosystem of people with these incredible tools. But like, how do we have to think about this stuff? There have been some lawsuits recently, Stable Diffusion, you mentioned Midjourney mm. as well, right? What's the copyright? And we don't have the answer, but I'm just curious about your, curious about your opinion on this. How does copyright play a role in this type of stuff, right? Like, can I really go to Getty Images and take all this stuff and then use them in Midjourney to do all this stuff? or not? Like, how does all that get stitched together? What we know is that regulation tends to lag behind. So you get Always. the early adopters, uh, you know, the, the really technical people, the early adopters, the, the, the early mid, 
it's not until the late mid tend to hit that regulation tends to come in. But I would urge anyone listening who's involved in that area, um, regulation needs to get ahead of this because the speed it's going to move yeah. is going to be absolutely sensational. I, I monitor this every day and I'm, I feel like I'm getting behind. We're right in the middle of it, right? So um, I do think so much has to change. It's going to be reimagined substantially. You know, you, I always follow with, I'm a, I'm a musician, so I follow with real interest the court cases around um, around copying of songs right. and sampling. it's um yeah sampling well sampling is quite obvious but the famous case of the Verve that had a sample um, and a string sample from the Rolling Stones and yeah. they lost uh, essentially their entire earnings from that so what happens in a, in a new world where everything is derivative um so much humans have provided that barrier and we've called it creativity because we can't look in but now we can so. I think copyright lawyers uh, and copyright legislators need to get very busy. And if they're not using these tools, they absolutely should be. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering where this is going to go, right? What that regulatory environment is going to look like. And again, I'm, I'm not a musician, but I do follow the music. And you could see some artists who are super happy, even in the old days, right, to have a rapper take their music, sample it, turn it into something else. I mean, you saw like Run DMC, I think, did this with an Aerosmith, and then they both started singing together, if I remember this correctly. And now well, that's done do that. right. Yeah. <laughs> did I have that right, I think? Anyway, but you can see no, this. That's, but that's great collaboration. Unbelievable. Yeah, but so why can't you collaborate with the AI as well? That's my point, right? Is that as long as you're attributing it to the, to the, art, the original artist, I don't think anyone's going to have a real problem with this. And I can't remember the artist that I read about last week who also said, yeah, do it. Just let me know because in a way it's like an advertisement for them. Yeah. But I do think it makes it super exciting. And I just want to get back to me for a second because I'm not the target audience for this, but it, I feel like it's unleashed something in me that I couldn't have done before. And I think that's super. I'm curious about this too. A lot of people talk about AI in the context of like putting people out of work and stuff like that. But don't you think this builds this new hybrid environment where these types of tools don't put people out, but they just superpower them instead. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a real I'm an, a real AI pragmatic optimist. I would say so. Look, Microsoft did a study very recently, as in I saw it last week, and uh, thirty two percent of people were looking. It was the the biggest area was looking to make people more productive, and the the lowest um, the lowest recorded level of interest was 16% where people were looking to um, create savings, which, you know, could be laying people off. So yeah. I'm, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an optimistic humanist, and I believe that, for instance, if we can make you more productive by giving you a tool like MidJourney, and goodness me, definitely me, I, I couldn't have done the presentation that I presented over the last couple of weeks. I couldn't have done that six months ago. Yeah. So uh, is, is that what's going to happen? I really do believe so. I think at the edges, you always get people using a tool for good and for bad. And uh, I do believe that if regulators get out there and ensure that people are using it in ways that are compliant, et cetera, I think that'll be fine. But some people are going to use this for nefarious uh, reasons. Um, and the model, the creators of the models are updating these every day to try and limit the harm that can be created from them. But just remember, there's also open source. Right. Once open source hits the dark web, as you might want to call it, 
anything can be done. So let's use these tools for good. Let's turn them around and say to an AI, how can I stop this? And it will come up with concepts that we, we wouldn't have got there because, you know, we're just not as capable of processing so much error data. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, we could say that you could use PHP for nefarious things as well, right? I mean, half of the half of the viruses that yeah. are there are written in code. Or a so, hammer. Yeah, right. So fair enough. Can we dig a little bit deeper, though, into this savings versus productivity thing? And part of the reason why I want to talk about this is just to give people examples of other tools that were developed, even something simple like Lotus 123, right? Or Microsoft Excel, where when they came out, people said, okay, now accountants are all going to go out of business. And yet all it really did was superpower their ability to do even more analysis and made them in a way more valuable at their jobs as opposed to less, no? Oh, I, I entirely agree. So it's really the glass half full of this is going to make things worse, you know, you know, the half glass half empty, glass half full thing. So uh, last time I checked, the big four were still pretty big. They're still pretty successful. And yes, they're, they, I'll tell you what as well, they can do things with spreadsheets that mortals can't. Yeah. You know, they can use pivot tables for a start. <laughs> and that's just the beginning of it. Yeah. A funny little story from when I was at working at an investment bank. Um, myself and a couple of people thought it was a bit silly that we were giving away all of our foreign exchange transaction to the bank. And so we just put together a spreadsheet that mapped it all out for us. And and then we um we made the we made the the exchange rate um, differences between the spread, we made that internally for the bank. It made a lot of money, and that was in the middle of the um, that was in the middle of the uh, the GFC. So it was a handy time to do it. But it was literally created there on Excel. But it was not something that most people could do in Excel. So you right. still need specialists. Just as as we develop AI, we're going to have a whole breed of specialists. There is a term now that didn't exist last year: prompt engineer. Yep. Someone that writes the right thing to get the outcome out of AI. Didn't exist last year, or maybe it did, but I hadn't heard of it. It's right. certainly new. If I roll back to the beginning of my company six years ago, um, we created this platform. Then we realized we needed someone to use it. So we came up with the term conversational designer. And that was a new term. No one was using that. I advertised it. And all of a sudden, now it's a whole thing in itself. You get uh, websites dedicated to it. Now you get websites dedicated to people being prompt engineers. Yeah, I wanted to make this point, right? Because I think traditional media or mainstream media likes to fear monger around all types of new things because it's the only way they can get attention. And I just want to have kind of a substantive conversation around the fact that all of this stuff is cyclical. And like you say, at the edges, which is a term I'm going to start to use more because I like it a lot. These things are used for more good than they are for bad, right? The other ones are real. They are edge conditions. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I, I absolutely agree that what you need is um, you, you can't have regulation that totally squashes the people who are leading it no. uh, because normally they want to do the right thing. And while, you know, there, there's kind of jokes and they, they call them the tech bros and, uh, you know, a bunch of a bunch of um, nameless, ordinary white guys in their 20s picking the direction of, of civilization. It's actually a little bit different to that. Yeah. These people actually mean well. And one of the things from my presentation I gave last week was very much about this. It was around the concept of bias. Bias in AI yeah. is not really an issue. Um, the issue is bias in culture. So with AI, it's a cultural mirror and it shows us back the biases that we have. Well, what's the impact of that though? Well, AI accelerates what's already there. So 
if there's already bias, it can make that worse. And I'll give you an example. When I asked Midjourney for pictures of people in prison, it only showed me men. Wow. So, yeah, you need to be... Well, that's just one example. And there's all kinds of ones that are much worse as well. So we need to understand bias and then be able to back it out of a conversation or out of a representation that we're looking to give. So, you know, this goes to everything. And, and, and bias... AI really is a bias engine. So yeah. um, what it does is it looks for things that it's been given that there's more of that are statistically significant and it feeds them back. That is what it does. Do you test this at scale without like doing an official test? Because I've tried this actually on Twitter. I've tried to like do certain things to see then how it reacts to me and then just completely stop doing it to see if it changes its mind. Do you know what I mean? Do you do this as well? <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Certainly you can, um, if, if you want to see bias or echo chamber, you do a whole series of things in Twitter or Facebook, and then for the next three or four weeks, it will send you ads to buy kayaks or what bird feeders or whatever the thing is. That's a simple version of bias, but it's relevant. If I'm looking to buy a kayak, it's the right thing to do to show me. Yeah, yeah. But the darks, yeah, the dark side of that is that if I talk in a certain way or I'm biased against certain sectors of society it's going to feed me information that plays into that as well. Right. Now, this is a problem that Meta and, and Facebook um, has been facing for some time, and uh, it needs to be addressed, but it's a human problem. AI just accelerates it. Yeah, I mean, that's true for all technology, right? It's just humans are building the tech. It's, it ends up being a human problem. And even if AI starts doing things on its own, its built-in biases are the generated by human bias to, to, to begin with. Can we talk about this? When you give these presentations as well, what are some of the concerns that people reflect to you? Like, what are some of the questions you get? Do people care about privacy? Do they understand this idea of like private versus public LLMs and stuff like that? Or are people not addressing this? You watch in a couple of months, the media will be freaking out about it. I can, I can show you, but, but we're having this discussion now. So from 25 years of using the internet and you've left a trail behind you. Yeah. Those breadcrumbs, those photos, everything on Twitter, Facebook, anything that's ever leaked out into the public domain is going to be used and used and available. And then, yes, you can train on Getty Images if they've got a subscription for that. You can train on medical journals or whatever it might be. So it's it's come from all over. And once people realise that, they're like, oh, goodness me, I went to that party 15 years ago and there were some photos XYZ. That's in there. That stuff is in there. Yeah. So then you move the concept to, okay, that's what's already in there and it's pre-trained. If you've got client data yeah. that's completely private, you don't want to push that into one of these public engines to get a result. Like analyze these 10 years of client data and give me an outcome because that is now out there. They say they don't use it, but do. this is how you train these things. Yeah, they do. It, it is used. And so the next step you have to move to is the concept of the private LLM, which could be in a corporate environment where it's protected by a range of things. That's the kind of thing that we build. And then you move on to this personal LLM, which I really like the idea of. I've suggested to um, to Wikipedia that they create something like this, where you've got a secure LLM and then some kind of, we call it federated version, where there's different areas of knowledge that's specific to you and a private data bank that could be stored in my watch and when those are all added together, I get this incredible personal assistant. And I've been advocating for this since I've been in AI for over six years now. And I think it's going to come. 
I just don't know quite when, but it's very exciting. But are you building this too? Because this brings up something really, really exciting for me, right? Like you said, there's all this data about me in the world, but all this data that's that I have that's on a separate thing that's never been on the internet, right? And I'd yeah. love to be able to go through it, whether it's all the photos that I have of my daughter. I was just doing some photo work. I've got 45,000 photos. I'm, I'm not kidding because I had to transfer from one place to another. It took two days to do. But there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff in there. And if I could use something like Midjourney to say, combine a picture of my daughter when she was two with something when she was 16 or just, you know, create a time lapse for this, it would be super cool to do all this stuff. Or, you know, what were my grades when I was in seventh grade and how did that change for some, like all these great things you could do, you're right, would be amazing. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I've seen I've seen movies of people who have personal assistants who have these incredible memories and yeah. they say, oh, that person across the room that's the senator and you need to speak to them and they give their name and they've got two daughters called this and that. That's what it, that's what it can be like. And I think you've seen bits of it. Google Glass was, was too early. Yeah. Um, now there's a, uh, now there's a, I think it's an Oakley version of, uh, of glasses that have uh, cameras in them. Um, it's a bit better hidden. When you get some kind of physical tech that enables to you to, you mentioned it before, bring out your superpowers because you've got this, the engine that's up here in your head, you know, that is still a supercomputer that can't be rivaled in many ways. Yep. AI can do something different. It's yes and. Your brain plus the power of AI is going to be sensational. So how do we bring those together? That's the exciting part of what's coming. Yeah. So how has your use of AI at Ambit, just to bring it back to here, changed? And you founded this, you said, six years ago. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. So how has all this changed? And... I mean, there's just so much to talk about just in the business that you run for how this stuff is being used. But how has it changed, you think, since when you first started and now with all these other even more powerful tools available for you to incorporate into what you do? Yeah, I guess when we started, uh, the opportunity set, uh, or the ambit, if you will, was that uh, with the availability of cloud computing, you could have essentially a supercomputer that's on demand. Yeah. Just to answer that, a what seems like a simple question, we quickly worked out that simple questions for people are complicated questions for machines. And this has been our advantage over people who think it's easy. With the classic one, in fact, our biggest competition is people thinking they can build the stuff themselves. And I've never seen one that's worked. <laughs> they uh, Usually, you know, half a million dollars in the hole and they'll come back to us and they say, can you reuse this? Um, we say yes, but we don't really because it will slow us down. But Early on, um, there were, I guess, what you call um, early versions of NLP, natural language processing. Yeah. And that was used uh, in a relatively um, simple way, I guess, to uh, answer simple FAQ questions. And we, we went from that to this concept of a brain that could run a little bit more in parallel and we could understand people's conversations better and have more of a proper conversation However, it was quite a lot of effort to set up explicit conversations. 18 months ago, we started, or a little bit more than 18 months ago, we started working with the GPT concept where we could use GPT levels of understanding to trigger other parts of our platform. And so that's where we were able to do things that had taken us two months previously. We were able to now do them instead of months, it was taking us weeks, even days. And that's when we realized we were onto something really big. Uh, I guess the thing that the thing that really opened the door of opportunity for us is when uh, OpenAI released ChatGPT, everyone started using it and it became a 
this normal everyday amazing thing. And then people realized, oh, we actually need some help. We can do this. We would show them. We would In the early days, we would show them what we could do. And people didn't believe it. They thought it was magic. They thought right. it was a video. They had all kinds of reasons. So we've seen people's uh, receptivity to it change, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they're normalizing all this stuff, right? What do you think the What do you think the future of these conversations is going to look like from an artificial intelligence standpoint? And is it always going to be a hybrid experience, right? Like, so where does it fit into the sort of customer service stack? I see that it's ever evolving. So I, I do think that ultimately, even if you can get a faster service from automation, I think some people do gravitate to people for certain reasons yeah. and. Um, for instance, people come into our office here where I'm speaking from because they like being around people. Yeah, That's really the guide. And my parents, they won't be using, they probably won't use my product ever. They like to be able to call a phone line and talk to a person. And then they think that person's wonderful. And then they call that person directly. So I, I do think it's a hybrid experience. I think it will continue to change uh, over time. And you will discover... This is along the lines of the bricks and mortar theory that I've had for a long time. They will discover that there are the right time and place for certain conversations. So you can have a, um, let me think of buying a suit. If I'm buying a suit, a first suit for my son when he goes to the prom, I could buy that online, put in the measurements, and I could get a perfectly good suit for a couple of hundred dollars. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I'm going to go into the store and I'm, I'm pleased, by the way, when I buy my sunsuit, if I get it done in 20 minutes, I do not want a 20 minute experience of buying a $1,500 suit. Thank you. I want to go in there and I want the armchair and they, maybe they give me a coffee and they're going to bring out the fabrics and I'm going to choose the, the liner. That's the experience. And I don't think that AI is at any risk of replacing that. And before you say the metaverse, I'm going to be in there in that suit shop. Yeah, absolutely there is. And we will continue to evolve. And again, I'm, I'm optimistic about it. This is, I think this is the most fundamentally changing technology, bigger than the internet. I'm going to put that out there now. <laughs> I think it's bigger than the internet. There's part of me that's sad, actually, that you said, don't say the internet to me, because I feel like you expected me to do that. I'm sad. But I, I want to share a story with you, because I do think it's really important. When I was 20 years old and I was getting ready to graduate from university, right? And I needed a suit and I couldn't afford one. And my dad couldn't afford it either. But my grandfather had some money and he drove me into New York and we went to Barney's, which at the time was a single standing store downtown. And it was the place where really wealthy people went to get suits. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather spent three or four hours with me there looking at suits, looking at ties, buying a belt, getting the socks that matched. You know, and then when that was done, we went out and we had lunch or dinner. And that experience, I still remember to today. I can still see the suit and, and never going to give it away. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he's, he's like, he's teaching you how to buy an expensive item. He's teaching you how to, I mean, there's a huge transfer of knowledge there, right? And so um, he's showing you how to um, invest in yourself yeah. as well. And, and you, now, you remember it. You've got the name of the store to this day. Yeah. And also I have a memory with my grandfather that I treasure for the rest of my life. And you're right. I could have, you know, today you could buy a suit online for your son in 20 minutes, but you know what? He's going to love going to the store with you and going through that process and he'll tell all his friends about it and he'll never forget it. That's right. Anyway. Okay. 
Tim, I'm going to let you go. That was really awesome. I think we should do more of this. I'd love to have more conversations with you about this, even on a regular basis, to get your insight into things that are happening in the artificial intelligence market, because I do think there are a lot of people out there that want to know about it, but don't have yeah. a good and efficient way to know about it. I really want to thank you for doing this. Tim Warren, a co-founder and the CEO at Ambit, this was awesome. Thank you again. Thank you.